Hello and welcome to the death of the Roman Republic. Chapter 12, Caesar v. Pompey. Last episode, we saw the escalation of tension between Julius Caesar and his enemies in Rome. Caesar wanted a legal exception so he could run for the consulship outside the city of Rome so he didn't lose his legal immunity. But Cato the Younger and the Optimates made that impossible. They wanted him legally vulnerable to be able to prosecute him in court and tear down his prestige and actoritas. Pompey Magnus might have been able to provide Caesar with the exception he needed, but ultimately sided against Caesar and with the Optimates. The Senate voted through the final act to call Pompey to defend the Republic from Caesar should he try to invade Italy and start a civil war. Caesar, seeing invasion was the only viable option to maintain his power, illegally crossed the Rubicon River into Italy with a single legion. It's treason, then. By crossing the Rubicon River, Caesar went from a lawful governor to a renegade commander, leading an illegal invasion into Italy destined for Rome. Another civil war had begun, not out of some great ideological conflict, but of personal vendettas of the most powerful men in the Republic. Caesar's soldiers fought to keep his prestige and wealth intact, while Pompey and the Optimate soldiers would fight to tear Caesar down. If you thought last episode was a little boring, I'll spice it up for you then. Our essential question to keep in mind this episode is, who will win this civil war? The Caesarians or Pompeians? What advantages and disadvantages does each side have? As a point of clarification, Caesarians are Caesar's loyal forces and politicians. Pompeians include Pompey's loyal forces and politicians. Since Pompey sided with the Optimates like Cato, the Optimates are also considered Pompeians. As Caesar began to invade Italy, Roman politicians were scrambling. Caesar had actually launched another civil war. I can't believe you've done this. Now, where would they stand? With Caesar or with the Optimates? Some chose Caesar, believing he and his ten veteran legions who had conquered Gaul would crush any resistance. Some chose Pompey because of personal loyalty to him and trusting his experience more than Caesar's. One particularly conflicted politician was Marcus Junius Brutus. Brutus was the descendant of Lucius Junius Brutus, the man who kicked out the last Roman king and founded the Roman Republic. This Brutus was also one of Rome's most respected politicians. He was the son of Servilia, Caesar's longtime side chick. When Brutus was a boy, his father was killed by Pompey in Lepidus' rebellion, so he lived in the household of his uncle, Cato the Younger. Brutus had no love for Pompey, but respected his virtuous uncle, and he was also married to another Optimate's daughter. Brutus ultimately declared for the Optimates and would fight Caesar. Pompey once boasted all he had to do was stamp his feet, and the soldiers of Italy would spring from the earth to fight for him. As Caesar and his army now marched on that earth, Pompey found himself in a very tactically poor position. He had two legions in Italy he could immediately command. The problem was that they were originally formed for Caesar, had served him in Gaul, and had been paid by Caesar. Pompey wisely didn't trust this very Caesarian legion would actually fight for him. Pompey was the governor of Spain, where there were seven legions formed, but were still inferior to the ten legions of battle-hardened veterans that Caesar commanded. 
Of course, Pompey had the Republic's treasury at his disposal and could use his vast connections in Spain, Africa, and in the East to raise men and resources to crush Caesar. The problem was that it would take time to raise and coordinate these new legions, time which was quickly elapsing as Caesar barreled south. Caesar's single legion didn't make for a grand invasion force, but marching in January gave Caesar the element of surprise! Marching in the dead of winter caught Pompey and the Optimates off guard, robbing them of the chance to build their power and left them scrambling. This is bad. This is very, Stephen very a. bad. As Caesar descended south, he divided his forces and was able to subdue five towns without fighting or bloodshed. Inching closer to Rome on January 17th, Pompey and the Optimates abandoned the city. Even more neutral politicians left with them, fearing Caesar would execute his known enemies like Sola and Marius did when they marched on Rome, or even worse, Caesar would prescribe anyone he suspected opposed him, like Sola did on his second march on Rome. We're all gonna die! Pompey and the Optimates fled because they didn't have the manpower to defend the city from a single legion speeding their way. They would have to give up Rome itself to Caesar. Pompey tried to negotiate with Caesar, sending men to him. Pompey offered that both Caesar and himself could give up their commands and armies at the same time, and they could meet in Rome to make amends without bloodshed. Caesar rejected this offer. Why would he give up his advantage of a surprise invasion that sent his enemies reeling? What compromise could Pompey now offer when the Optimates had refused every other compromise previously? That is the most illogical attitude. Caesar continued toward Rome, while Pompey and the Optimates made their way to Brindisium in southern Italy. It was a port city, and would be used to ship out their strength from Italy across the Mediterranean, where they'd be able to build their strength away from Caesar. As he marched south, Caesar's army grew. He continued to take towns with little bloodshed, only taking a few prisoners. His soldiers were under strict orders. They could not loot and pillage these Italian towns, as they had in Gaul. Pillaging Italians would have been a very bad look for Caesar. These towns also remembered Caesar's great victories in Gaul, and may have gotten a taste of the gifts he sent back and were well disposed to him. The few Pompeian forces in Italy mostly fled at Caesar's advance. Some Pompeian soldiers even joined the renegade Caesar. I wouldn't want to fight me neither. Along the way, some of Caesar's legions in Gaul caught up with him, and Caesar's army only grew as he peacefully marched south towards Rome. The ultimate Domitius Ahenobarbus decided to take a stand against Caesar. Ignoring Pompey, who told him that he would only lose to Caesar, Ahenobarbus was able to raise three legions of recruits and prepare to defend the town of Corfinium, in between Caesar and Rome. Ahenobarbus wrote letters to Pompey, trying to convince him that they could beat Caesar at Corfinium. Pompey wrote back, actively encouraging Ahenobarbus' soldiers to abandon him and come south. Pompey, you fools! Caesar closed in on Corfinium and Ahenobarbus and began constructing a blockade around the town. Ahenobarbus and his men would be trapped inside, cut off from resources when it was complete. Before the blockade was complete, Ahenobarbus got a final letter from Pompey, who had told Ahenobarbus so many times he wasn't going to help him out, told Ahenobarbus a final time he was not going to help him out. What's not clicking? What's not clicking? Ahenobarbus lied to his men and told them everything was going swimmingly, as Pompey the Great was coming to relieve them. Secretly, Ahenobarbus planned an escape. His soldiers caught wise to Ahenobarbus' odd behavior and discovered the truth. No help was coming, and their general planned to abandon them. The soldiers arrested Ahenobarbus and surrendered themselves and Corfinium to Caesar. 
Sieging Corfinia may have taken weeks or months, so Caesar was happy to have the whole affair wrapped up in a week. Caesar summoned Ahenobarbus and his senior officers. He told them how he justified this war. He was wronged and had been treated unfairly by the Senate. But these men were not his enemies, but soldiers in the war. Caesar allowed them all to go free. It was a brilliant stroke of propaganda. The renegade commander did not execute his enemies like Sola or Marius, or even the young butcher Pompey. Caesar's soldiers did not loot the towns they came across and allowed men, even men who disliked him like Ahenobarbus, to walk free, because Caesar was righteous. What's about sending a message? Ahenobarbus used his freedom to join up with the Pompeians and would soon be fighting Caesar again. Caesar asked Ahenobarbus's three legions to take an oath of loyalty to him, and so Caesar's strength increased. Caesar raced past Rome and continued south to Brindisium, where Pompey and the Optimates were shipping all the men and supplies they could to the east. Caesar and his now six legions met Pompey, who only had two legions, shipping the last of their supplies out. Caesar wasn't able to attack, and Pompey and the Optimates and their resources were able to escape east. Pompey would concentrate his power in Greece and Macedon into a massive army that could wipe out Caesar, just as Sulla had concentrated his power in the east before his second civil war. While Pompey and the Optimates had made a full escape, they left Caesar in total control of Italy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Caesar was not hot on Pompey's heels. He still had seven legions in Gaul to amass, and Pompey took most of the ships in the area. In the meantime, Caesar now looked at Rome. With Pompey, the Optimates, and many politicians fled, Rome was without a functioning government. While the Optimates called themselves the defenders of the Republic against Caesar, Caesar had the opportunity to restore order in Rome itself in spite of so many senators abandoning it. By peacefully restoring order in Rome, Caesar could prove to the people he was not fighting the Republic, but the Optimate faction who blindly hated him and tried to wrongfully tear him down. By peacefully restoring order, Caesar could prove that he was the legitimate leader of the Republic, not the Optimates. A chance of Caesar, commander of Rome, to show his quality. The great order Cicero was deeply torn by the civil war. He was disgusted in the eagerness for war he saw in some of his colleagues. He disliked how quickly Rome, and even Italy, was abandoned by the Optimates who had called themselves legitimate against the renegade Caesar. Cicero was also very loyal to Pompey, who he believed had the potential to be a great politician in the ideals of the Republic even if he often failed. Cicero was also on good terms with Caesar, in one instance writing personal condolences to Caesar when his daughter Julia died. In another instance, Caesar helped secure a triumph for Cicero, for his victories over hostile tribes when Cicero served as a governor. Rising to prominence as a humble orator, to be recognized as a war hero with a triumph was a great joy to Cicero. Despite his fondness for Caesar, he was appalled by his illegal invasion of Italy, but happy at his mercy when he pardoned his enemies at Corfinium. So, yes, a lot of mixed emotions from Cicero. Cicero had left Rome in the wake of Caesar's invasion, but did not travel east with the Optimates. To help the Republic run more smoothly, Caesar asked Cicero to return on multiple occasions, all of which Cicero refused. He didn't want to be used as a pawn to make Caesar's Rome look more legitimate in the eyes of the people. He remained in Italy, just not in Rome. Caesar continued without Cicero. His allied tribunes Quintus Cassius and Mark Antony 
Some of the remaining senators outside of Rome, which Caesar could still not legally enter. The turnout was poor, as the most distinguished and rich senators fled, fearing Caesar would inflict a bloodbath on them. To the few who came, Caesar re-emphasized the righteousness of his cause. Caesar made the legal argument that Pompey and the Optimates were abusing the rights of the tribunes, like Pompey dissolving the law all ten tribunes passed that would have allowed Caesar to stand for consul outside Rome. He also pointed out that Quintus Cassius and Mark Antony, while sacrosanct, no touching, had fled Rome, fearing for their lives. As Caesar was always keen to manipulate the Roman people, Mark Antony summoned the common people of Rome. Caesar explained his actions to them, and blamed his enemies for the civil war. He assured them that he would maintain the supply of food to Rome, and promised 300 sesterces to each citizen, which was a good amount of money. Both the Senate and the common people showed little enthusiasm for Caesar. They were still wary of a bloodbath coming their way, as Sola and Marius inflicted before him. Most didn't have a strong ideological leaning to either side, and simply wanted to survive another civil war. Caesar seized the Republic's treasury to help him build up his forces. While Caesar's wealth could only be compared to Pompey's, to raise more legions and mobilize resources would take more wealth than he alone possessed. Unlike Gaul, he couldn't demand or threaten communities to hand over their men and resources, as he had to win the hearts and minds of this civil war and be able to properly compensate those who provided resources. A single tribune tried to stop Caesar from seizing the treasury fund. Julius, champion of the sacrosanct tribune Caesar, threatened to kill the man who backed down. What would happen if I refused you the funds? It would be extremely painful. You're a rich guy. For you. Caesar now had his war fund. While Pompey and the Optimates were concentrating power in the east, Pompey left his Spanish provinces and legions out to dry. Caesar took his six legions to Spain to subdue the Pompeians and left Mark Antony in charge of Italy. While Antony was only a tribune, Caesar bent the rules to give him the legal authority of a governor, traditionally only given to former consuls or praetors. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna give you a promotion. Welcome aboard, Mr. Manager. Wow, a Mr. Manager! With Caesar in Spain and Antony in Italy, Caesar tasked other subordinates in capturing other areas of the Republic more loosely held by Pompeian forces, like the provinces of Africa, Sicily, and Illyria. The Caesarians divided to conquer. Pompey left three subordinate legates in charge of the Spanish provinces, with seven legions between them. While they had the numerical advantage, Caesar's six legions definitely had more experience and financial loyalty to him. Many of Caesar's soldiers spent years in Gaul with him, and were handsomely rewarded for their service. Beyond that financial loyalty, there was a personal loyalty to Julius Caesar. Pompey's more recently raised legions had little or no relationship with him. Spanish terrain was famously difficult for the Romans. It took well over 150 years for the Romans to fully hold modern Spain and Portugal. The mountainous geography is what allowed many small insurgencies to escape Roman forces. Wrestling Spain from Pompeian forces would be no cakewalk like the peaceful surrenders in Italy. Caesar got to work. At various points, he divided his legions to conquer more land, and at other times, reamassed them. Caesar certainly lost men and took casualties, but one by one, the Pompeians were defeated by Caesar. The last great Pompeian opposition was led by Marcus Petraeus. Petraeus and his Pompeians were surrounded by Caesar. While Caesar's officers were eager to attack, Caesar was not, believing Petraeus would eventually surrender 
and Caesar didn't want to waste lives, the Pompeians and Caesareans began building fortifications to shore up their positions. Working not so hostily in close proximity, Caesareans and Pompeians began to fraternize with each other, finding friends and relatives on the other side. While some Pompeian officers wanted to surrender, their general Petraeus sent forces to massacre any of Caesar's men in their camps. Some were able to hide or escape. Caesar, on the other hand, allowed the Pompeians to move freely or even stay in his camps. Again, a show of mercy to his enemies by the benevolent and righteous Caesar. What's about sending a message? Petraeus was able to muster morale for one last breakout attempt from Caesar's encirclement. It failed, and Caesar's encirclement grew tighter, cutting off the Pompeians from the water supply they had. Still, he did not go in for a final assault to wipe them out. Another of Pompey's legates, Afranius, negotiated for peace. Like Corfinium, Caesar made no executions or imprisonments and allowed all the Pompeians to go freely. As he marched towards Pompey's last legate, Terentius Varro was unnerved that his fellow legates were defeated and surrendered as his forces were deserting him. It took five months for Caesar to gain control of Spain. While he had losses, some Pompeian soldiers joined his cause. While Pompey lost Spain, he spent the whole time gathering strength in the east where he had the advantage, where he made his famous conquests. Petraeus and Afranius sailed that way to fight Caesar another day. While Caesar had been fighting in Spain, Mark Antony was to keep order while he was away. The Caesareans made efforts to prepare what resources they could to ship east where they would fight Pompey, although Antony himself wasn't necessarily the chief administrator behind this very logistical operation. Under Antony, there were at least no revolts against Caesar, although Antony did not do a lot of good for Caesar's brand. Roman governors were traditionally not very moral leaders, and Antony was no exception. If you thought Caesar had a wild young life, Antony's generation was even wilder and took indulgence further. What did Antony and his generation indulge in? Chicks, money, power, and chicks. Antony and his generation of Romans grew up in a republic literally falling apart and there was a lot less restraint in life. A 35-year-old Antony should not have been given control over Italy by a renegade commander, yet there he was. Antony was very publicly indulgent and drunk on power. He openly paraded his mistress through the streets of Rome, an insult to his wife. Yet Antony feared no repercussion. Reports of Antony's behavior concerned those like Cicero. Perhaps Caesar's talks of insulted honor was all a lie when his real goal was to kill Pompey and Cato, the true defenders of the Republic, so he could run Rome like Antony was now. Cicero and Antony had some heated correspondences via letter. Antony tried to convince Cicero to come to Rome as Caesar had, but Cicero still refused. Cicero would eventually leave Antony's Italy for Pompey in the east. Lucky for Antony, no true crisis ever faced him while Caesar was away. Caesar returned to Italy, leaving Tribune Quintus Cassius in control of Spain. The rest of the Republic was not so easily subdued. Some of Caesar's subordinates failed to capture their assigned tasks. While Sicily was seized without bloodshed, Caesar lost one of his generals and many men in their failure to gain North Africa, and Antony's brother Lucius Antonius surrendered a legion and a half in Illyria to the Pompeians. A legion in Spain threatened mutiny, upset they never got to loot helpless civilians like they used to in Gaul, and felt Caesar was too lenient to his enemies that killed their comrades. Caesar was still close enough to handle this himself and very coldly threatened to decimate the legion. 
killing one out of every ten, and then dishonorably discharge the survivors. The Legion begged forgiveness to their commander, claiming they were still loyal to him. The charismatic Caesar mercifully relented, and only decided twelve men needed to be executed, who Caesar determined as the twelve men who incited this near mutiny. Returning to Rome, Caesar wanted to ensure the Republic was functioning in spite of civil war. Rome's consuls for the year had abandoned Rome, so Caesar was appointed dictator by Praetor Marcus Aemilius Lepidus. This Lepidus shared the same name as his father, the consul who went renegade after Sulla's death and got himself and Brutus's father killed by Pompey. This new Lepidus was loyal to Caesar. A Praetor declaring a politician dictator was without precedent, but who was going to tell Caesar no? As dictator, Caesar appointed himself and one of his allies as consuls without an election. Elections were held for other positions, and Caesar used his dictatorial powers to pass a series of laws, generally concerned with confirming the loyalty of his supporters and winning new ones. For example, Sulla's prescriptions left the children of the prescribed ineligible to enter Roman politics, but Caesar ended this measure, which gained him allies. While dictators traditionally held power for six months, Caesar gave his up just after 11 days. Caesar already made himself a consul and had a renegade army, so there was no real need to hold the dictatorship. It was now January, and a year had passed since Caesar had began his civil war on Rome. Caesar now had 12 legions at his disposal and Italy and Spain under his control. Quite a few of his soldiers were former Pompeians who switched allegiance, whether in Italy, Spain, or elsewhere. This entire time, Pompey had been raising resources and men in the east. At close to 60 years old, it would have been over a decade since he commanded. Yet Pompey still seemed sharp as ever, drilling his new legions and masterfully coordinating the flow of logistics. The province of Macedon would be the battleground. Caesar sailed that way, leaving Mark Antony in charge of keeping shipments of supplies and men coming behind him. Pompey still had the massive advantage of taking many ships with him out of Italy to the east. Caesar couldn't transport all of his forces at once and was only able to land seven legions in hostile territory. Yet just like the invasion of Italy, Pompey didn't expect Caesar to sail in January, and Caesar had... The element of Caesar and his initial forces landed in northwestern Greece near Macedon. Of course, he and his seven legions were cut off from any additional resources for the foreseeable future. Antony would have to land the rest of the troops and supplies, having to contend with Pompey's larger navy without any element of surprise. In the meantime, Caesar and his legions were on the move, and most towns he encountered peacefully surrendered to him rather than suffer devastation. They surrendered their supplies, giving Caesar the resources he needed to feed his men. Caesar moved to take Dyrrhachium, a coastal city that served as the logistical hub for Pompey's ships and the resources they brought in across the east. Pompey mobilized nine legions to defend Dyrrhachium. Pompey's legions were also closer to full strength than Caesar's, and Caesar may have been outnumbered two to one. Caesar withdrew rather than risk a potentially blunderous attack. Worse for Caesar, he now had to deal with the Pompeian naval blockade. Pompey's navy was led by Caesar's old rival, Bibulus, who surrounded Caesar's coastline. They already repelled one of Antony's landing attempts, starving Caesar of reinforcements and resources. Pompey's numerically stronger army moved closer to Caesar. Caesar now offered that he and Pompey could lay down their armies and allow the Senate and the people to find a solution to this civil war, but Pompey declined. Pompey certainly felt himself in a good position. The overconfident Caesar had blundered and was trapped in Pompey's territory. 
While Caesar could scavenge resources, he couldn't rely on Antony's shipments, and Pompey himself had more and better fed forces than Caesar. Pompey had no reason to negotiate when he was in the position of strength. That is a most illogical attitude. But Caesar was nowhere near lost. His men aggressively patrolled the coasts and took control of nearby harbors so Bibulus's navy couldn't land and resupply food and water as each ship had to do every few days. Bibulus asked for a truce so he could land his increasingly uncomfortable sailors, but Caesar would only allow it if he ended the blockade. Bibulus didn't, so sections of Bibulus's navy would have to sail farther away to resupply, weakening the blockade. Shortly after this, Bibulus would die from disease, but the blockade would live on. In April, four months after Caesar landed in the east, Mark Antony was finally able to land four legions for Caesar and the armies united. Caesar's forces were still smaller than Pompey's, but again, more experienced and battle-hardened as a whole. Caesar moved again towards Pompey's Dyrrhachium. The two armies prepared for battle outside the city. Due to geography, Caesar had a good water supply, but lacked food for all his legions. On the other hand, Pompey had shipments of food from the port, but lacked a fresh water supply. Both armies would slowly weaken, but neither wanted to back down. Caesar tried to build fortifications that would surround Pompey, forcing him to escape by sea, attack Caesar's fortifications at a disadvantage, or slowly watch his army wither away. Pompey sent raids to hinder construction, and Caesar's men took many casualties repulsing the attack, which made it harder for his fewer forces to encircle Pompey's men. Neither still wanted to give an open battle. If Caesar attacked, his men would fight uphill, giving Pompey the advantage. I have the high ground! If Pompey attacked, his extra cavalry would be impeded on the rough train Caesar sat on. It's coarse rough, and still wasn't confident he could overcome Caesar's veteran forces. Two Gauls that had been with Caesar defected to Pompey. Pompey was delighted that loyalty to Caesar was not so ironclad, and the Gauls were able to detail the strengths and weaknesses of Caesar's position. With newfound confidence, Pompey planned a bold breakout attempt. At midnight, he concentrated forces to break through Caesar's lines and started with initial success. Mark Antony was able to stabilize the situation for the Caesareans, but Pompey decisively broke Caesar's line that was to block him in. His whole army wasn't out, but the Pompeians had greater freedom to forge the area for resources. Pompey gained ground and again inflicted casualties on Caesar's smaller forces. Caesar attempted a bitter counterattack. It was a costly failure. Caesar and his forces were driven back by Pompey and his captured men were executed rather than pardoned. The Pompeian army was elated to have beaten back Caesar and his veteran legions. Caesar was not invincible, but only human. Pompey did not press on with a full assault and try to crush Caesar then and there. Caesar would address his men. This wasn't the first setback they had faced. All the way back in Gaul, they were repelled at Dragovia, yet still achieved victory in the end. Caesar's objective was lost, and his forces retreated in the night, giving a good head start before Pompey realized what happened. Pompey sent cavalry who had a few skirmishes, but didn't send a concentrated force after Caesar. To summarize this episode, Caesar had a strong start in his civil war, but struggled in the mid-game. Throughout it, he portrayed himself fairly well to more neutral parties as he peacefully took control of Italy. Many politicians, and most common citizens, didn't have a strong stance and simply wanted to survive another civil war. He was successful in his campaigns in Spain, and even had some successes in the east before being defeated at Dyrrhachium. 
Caesar was not decisively beaten and still escaped with the majority of his men, but Pompey had proven he was still a very capable general. Our central question this episode was, who will win the civil war, the Caesarians or Pompeians? What advantages and disadvantages does each side have? As a point of clarification, the Caesarians are... Oh yeah, I don't need to read that part. Go ahead and pause if you'd like to think of your response. At this point, it's hard to tell. This civil war is not done, and each side has their own unique advantages. Let's review. Caesar, at least at the start, had the element of speed and... <laughs> that sent the Pompeians scrambling. Caesar has less soldiers and less cavalry than Pompey, but what he does have is more experience, more loyal legions forging their conquest of Gaul. Even so, these experienced legions were just defeated by Pompey the Great at Dyrrhachium. From a young age, Pompey Magnus proved himself a brilliant commander, and fighting in the east is basically his home turf. He has more soldiers and cavalry, albeit less experienced than Caesar, but made Caesar bleed this episode. Next episode, the bloodshed continues to the endgame. What do you think will happen? Whose head will roll? Pompey's or Caesar's? Please consider checking out Death of the Roman Republic podcast on YouTube. Visit to re-listen to episode highlights from the show. Check out the show on YouTube at Death of the Roman Republic podcast. Re-listen to favorite clips and share with friends and help them discover the show. Link to the channel is in the podcast notes. Thank you. The Caesar Civil War memes uh, has begun, so if you'd like to see those, you can follow the show at D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter for good old Roman history memes and Roman education material where we'll summarize this episode, so go ahead and follow at D-O-T-R-R-Pod on Twitter if you're so inclined. Feel free to subscribe and rate and review the show on platforms like Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to contact the show via email, you can email dotrrpod at gmail.com. That's dotrrpod at gmail.com to contact the show. Thank you for listening. All that said, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank <music> you.